see if Gibson can turn a double play here. How about that? Come on. Gibson, one of the better fielding pitchers in the American League. All right, we're here with Kyle Gibson. Kyle, I got to know, what is it like to be part of a comeback in a Major League Baseball game? Yeah, one of the most memorable ones that I've been a part of was uh, back in 2015. We were losing to the Tigers, I think, by four going into the ninth. And it was leading up to the All-Star break. Doge had hit a homer uh, like the day before. He came up, and uh, I can't remember if it was game tying or a walk-off, but he hits another homer against the Tigers and capped off a five- or six-run ninth there. And uh, there's nothing like it. You know, when, when you go from a situation where, uh, you know, you have nothing going you're down by three or four runs started and then all of a sudden you get a little things going and things start going your way and you get a little bit more excitement in the dugout and then uh, before you know it you have the big moment where you finish the comeback and, and win the game yeah so uh, how's that relate to your Christian faith well you know what I think uh, to some extent we all have some sort of a comeback story you know for me it was uh, I fractured a growth plate in my elbow when I was 15 and I was leaning on baseball for my identity and for everything and had to have surgery that that spring for the first time baseball wasn't a part of my life uh, and that was the first time that I made a decision to actually follow Christ and allow him to really take root in my life. And, you know, it's certain stories like that that always bring us, you know, maybe you call that the comeback. You know, you bring us right back to to the Lord. And uh, some of the best stories in the Bible, I feel like, are, are comeback stories. You have that story where you have the one son who's, in his mind, done everything right. He's the righteous son. Uh, but how cool of a story is it for the father and the, the prodigal son that comes back? Uh, to get to reunite with him and, and actually have that type of a comeback story. So uh, I think those are some of the, the best stories in the Bible to look at. Yeah, fantastic. Kyle, thanks for your time. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. it. All right. Kyle Gibson's a tall guy. I was straining my neck during that interview. It was so much fun being with those twins that day and hearing their stories of faith. Kyle especially, those guys were so gracious. Kyle knows his Bible. I was really impressed just having a conversation with him about his love for God's word. It was just so encouraging being in the dugout with those guys. And then of course, hearing these stories of comebacks in baseball games, and that's because we're part of this series, bottom of the ninth, we're looking at stories of comeback from scripture. But before I get into the message, I wanna give you an update on something that we asked for you to do this last Tuesday. Uh, we mentioned to you that some of our global partners in the country of Nepal were facing some really challenging situations because Nepal recently passed an anti-conversion law. So it's now illegal to preach the name of Jesus in that country. And uh, some of our global partners just asked, hey, would you be praying for us? And so on Tuesday, uh, we did because that law went into effect on Wednesday. And I wanna let you know, we've been keeping in touch with them and uh, so far no arrests have been made, which is a huge answer to prayer but there have been uh, some increased presence uh, with the police, even going to the home of some of these pastors and uh, making them fill out paperwork and, and things like that. So um, we need to continue to, to keep our global partners in your prayers and pray specifically, if you would, for wisdom for them, that they would know kind of how to handle the situations that they're facing. Uh, it was encouraging though, to just hear so many of you who are in prayer for uh, those partners. I was getting texts and emails and phone calls all week, people saying, hey, have you heard? What's the news? What's the latest? And uh, that, just, that just speaks to your heart as, as a church, that we are really committed to the cause of the gospel here, near, and far. And so for that, I just wanted to say thank you. So stories of comeback. There are good comebacks, and then there are bad comebacks. You know, good comebacks, comebacks like, Daniel and the lion's den, or David and Goliath, or even in folklore, you know, that story of Robin Hood, when it seems like he's not going to make it, but then at the very end, he's able to outwit the sheriff of Nottingham and justice is restored. That's a good comeback story. 
then there are bad comeback stories. Like in 2017, when the New England Patriots came from way behind to defeat the Atlanta Falcons and win yet another Super Bowl, that's a bad comeback, right? Those guys win all the time, right? It's time for somebody else to win. Or maybe it's at work. Uh, you have somebody that you work with that's just, they're not very good at their job and you don't have a great relationship with them and they're kind of getting moved out of the organization anyway. But then there's a leadership transition. And that person goes from almost being fired to now becoming your boss. It's a bad comeback. Or maybe one of the worst comebacks I've seen recently, the fanny pack. <laughs> it's just no reason that thing should have left the 1990s, right? But if you ever thought about what makes a comeback a good comeback, and specifically, what makes a comeback a good comeback according to God? How does God define a good comeback? comeback? That's the question we're going to answer today. And to do it, we're going to look at a comeback story. But before we get to that story, I need to tell you another one. There's a guy, he lives not far from you, and he's a really good guy. In fact, he's a guy that pretty much everybody likes. He has a great reputation. People love being around him. Nobody's ever heard this guy utter a negative word about anybody else. He goes over to his aging parents' house often, and he helps with projects around the house, never complains about it. Now, he's not perfect, but none of us are. But he wonders, in the quietness of his own heart, when he's alone, is it enough? Have I done enough? What would God say about me? Is there anything I could do to improve my standing with God? Do I need a comeback? with God. Now, just down the road, there's another guy. And this guy is very similar to the first guy. Both of them are incredibly wealthy. But that's about all these two guys have in common. See, the second guy, he, he's a jerk. He's manipulative. He takes advantage of people. Uh, he's rude to folks. He has power, and he abuses it on a daily basis. In fact, that's how he's gotten into his wealth, is he's done things that basically have been illegal. Now, the reason that this guy can get away with it is because he works for a deeply unethical organization. His bosses benefit from his underhanded behavior, so they just look the other way. Now, he struggles with this because he knows what he's doing is wrong, but it supports his lifestyle, and so he's not really sure how to get out of it. And he too wonders, in the quietness of his own heart, what would God say about me? Does God know what I'm doing? If I met God, what would God say to me? Is there anything I can do to experience a restored relationship with God? Could I ever have a comeback with God? These stories, they actually happened. One day, a very righteous man came to Jesus, and he asked him a good question. It was a comeback question. The question he asked him is he said, good teacher, what must I do to earn eternal life? It's a great question. And Jesus responded to him. He said, well, you know the commandments. You need to keep them. And the guy's ears perked up because this is what he did best. And he said, that's good news. I can almost picture him kind of standing up a little bit straighter and looking at Jesus and saying, I have kept all those commandments since I was a very young boy. And Jesus responds to this guy in a way that honestly, it's a little shocking, and it seems a bit harsh. Luke records this for us, Luke 18, 
starting in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at this man and he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And that's an unsettling statement. It's unsettling for us to hear or for us to read, and it was certainly unsettling for this guy. I mean, can you imagine how disappointed and discouraged he must have felt? I mean, here, his whole life, all he has ever done has been trying to do the right thing and keep the commandments and be on God's good side. And he meets this Jesus guy and he asks what else he can do to kind of help improve his resume or improve his standing. It's a fair question. And Jesus says, if you're trying to get there on your own effort, the expectations just went way through the roof. And the guy goes, That's, it's just not even possible for me to live like that. What, why? How frustrating that experience must have been. Maybe you know that kind of frustration. Maybe you've given up on your relationship with God or you've stepped back from your relationship with God because you've experienced a similar frustration. You feel like you've done all you can and you just, it just never seems good enough for God. So why did Jesus respond that way? I mean, why, why act that way to what seems to be a pretty fair question? Well, to help us understand that, we need to look at another comeback story that Luke tells us just a few verses later. Because we're gonna see this story has a very different response. We pick up the story in Luke 19, starting in verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was very wealthy. And we know how Zacchaeus was wealthy because of the phrase chief tax collector. This guy made his money collecting taxes. Now, Rome at the, this time in history conquered basically most of the known world. And how they got their money was through local tax agents. But Rome was notoriously corrupt. And so how these tax agents would work is they would collect the money that was rightfully due to Rome and then some extra, or sometimes a lot extra. And they would enrich themselves and line their own pockets with the difference. Now, everybody knew this, but nobody could ever figure out how much was actually due to Rome or how much were they just taking for themselves, and so nobody trusted these tax collectors. And if you were a Jew, it was even worse because Rome was seen as the enemy. And by collecting tax that would go to Rome, it was almost like you were helping to fund what the Jews perceived to be an illegitimate government. And they thought that when the Messiah came, the Messiah was gonna kick out Rome. And when that happened, the Messiah would probably take it out on the tax collectors too, because those guys were traitors against God's chosen people. That's Zacchaeus. So he is not loved in his own town, because not only is he a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector. He's in charge of these guys. He's the one that's teaching them how to behave in such an underhanded way. And I'm sure people in the town would have known stories of the impact of Zacchaeus's work. They would have known about that family that wasn't able to feed their kids because of the heavy tax burden that Zacchaeus and the other tax collectors put on them. 
In fact, I can almost imagine that as as Zacchaeus would walk down the road of Jericho with his rich robes kind of flowing behind him, he would walk past some of those kids that were begging for food. And the people of the town would just stare at, at the injustice of that all and just be angry about how Zacchaeus could behave in in such a terrible way. But there was this one thing about Zacchaeus, this one distinguishing physical characteristic that kind of brought a little bit of maybe justice to the situation. In fact, this distinguishing physical characteristic is something that we know about because often we teach kids a song about Zacchaeus and we describe that distinguishing physical characteristic in the song. And so if you grew up in church or you taught your kids this song or you've ever heard it and you know it, say it with me. Zacchaeus was a... He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus was famously short. And so one day Zacchaeus is out on the streets of Jericho and he wants to see something, but he can't because he's so short. And I'm sure the people in town aren't helping him at all. I mean, I can imagine them almost kind of standing a little bit closer together to to not let him have a a view of what was happening. See, this man named Jesus was walking by, and everybody was excited to go see him because there was a buzz about Jesus. This guy was performing miracles. This guy was teaching with great authority that he was revealing knowledge about God and about Scripture that nobody had ever heard before. In fact, some people were whispering rumors that maybe, maybe this Jesus, he might be the Messiah. And so they were justified in not giving Zacchaeus a view in because they thought, listen, if this guy has any relationship to God and if he maybe even could become the Messiah, Zacchaeus is like the furthest person away from this guy. He has no standing here whatsoever. And so Zacchaeus, but he just, he wants to see Jesus. And I wonder if it's because he he thought that maybe Jesus knew something that maybe Jesus could give him some insight, that maybe, maybe Jesus could, could teach him something or, or give him a perspective on how he could get out of the situation that he was in. Maybe, maybe Jesus could give him some insight about how he could have a comeback with God. And so he wants to see Jesus so bad that he does something that I am sure caused eye rolls throughout town. He climbs a tree. Now, seeing a grown man in a tree is weird in the middle of a city. And here he is, up in the tree with his robes and his sandals. I'm sure there's other kids up in this tree. And there's Zacchaeus perched up in this tree, looking foolish. But he doesn't care. He just wants to see Jesus. But it's Jesus who sees him. And Jesus stops under that tree, and he looks up. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, for I must, I must Be a guest in your house today. And to be a guest in somebody's home was a huge honor, especially when that person was a prominent figure. This was a big deal for Zacchaeus. And the crowd went nuts. They lost their mind. I mean, they thought, you gotta be kidding me. They started grumbling and complaining. They go, no, 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 Jesus, not this guy. Like, not Zacchaeus. He works for Rome. He's for the enemy. He's not for us. Like this guy, he's a cheat. He's, he's, no, he's a sinner. When I was in high school, I ran on the cross country team. And a couple times a week, we would go into the weight room and have to lift weights. And as a runner, that's, that's an intimidating place to be. And at times, a humiliating place to be. And it was made worse by the fact that there was a guy in that weight room 
who was just a huge jerk. And by huge, I mean he was massive, like huge muscles. He held all the weightlifting records in our high school. And every time we walked into the weight room, this guy would just mock us relentlessly. He would make fun of us, he would goad us, he would give us a hard time. It was just awful being around him. But one time I was in that weight room and I watched him just completely embarrass and humiliate one of our freshmen. That guy ended up leaving the weight room in tears. Just made me angry. This guy treated people this way. Now, I was also part of a Christian athlete group. And one day we're having a meeting and that guy walks in, huge jerk guy, walks into our meeting. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, I grumbled. Just like that town in Jericho. I turned to one of my friends. I said, what's he doing here? I said, he doesn't belong here. He's not one of us. He's not with us. Do you know, do you know what he said last week? Do you know how this guy, do you know how this guy acts? Yeah, he, do you know what I heard about him? And I'm embarrassed to tell you that story. Because see, at the time I knew Jesus, but I didn't understand the power that Jesus had to change people. But Zacchaeus did. Because when Zacchaeus climbed down out of that tree, he wasn't just climbing down to have a guest in his home. He was climbing down out of that tree to have his entire world rocked. His whole paradigm about who God was, about his understanding about the law and about righteousness, it was all gonna be shattered because he thought it was all about what he had to do. He didn't understand grace. And as he, he would have been in his home and heard Jesus tell these stories about God, these parables, he would have understood a whole different version of God. And it changed him because he found the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And Zacchaeus comes out a new man. Luke tells us in verse eight what happened. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. And four times is key because that's referencing an Old Testament law. It's found in Exodus chapter 22 that says, if anybody cheats or steals from anybody else within Israel and they're caught, they're supposed to pay it back what they owe fourfold. And what Zacchaeus is essentially saying is he's saying, I'm in, I'm gonna start following the law. I was a sinner, what I did was wrong. It was, it, 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 it was, it was theft, I stole, and I'm done with that. And I'm now gonna start following the law. But he doesn't stop there. He ends up giving half of his possessions away to the poor. So here's this guy who professionally extorts money from his neighbors, who after this meeting with Jesus is now giving away a substantial amount of his income to other people. So is that it? Is that, is that the point of the story? Is that God's version of a comeback? That rich guy number one comes to Jesus and he won't give his money away, and so he's out of God's kingdom. Rich guy number two, Zacchaeus, comes to Jesus and does give his money away, and he's in. And as tempting as it would be for me to ask the ushers to come forward and let's take a collection right now, <laughs> money is not the point of these two stories. Yet money's involved, and you can have great applications about money from these stories. But there's something else that's going on here. See, God's version of a comeback, God's idea of a comeback, it's different from ours. And something happened to Zacchaeus that didn't happen to the first guy, 
that made his comeback possible, and that if we can understand, can help make our comeback possible. And the clue for that comes in how Jesus responded to Zacchaeus, and that's in verse nine. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And that's our clue, the phrase son of Abraham. Whenever Abraham is referenced throughout scripture, it's often done as somebody who's the example of faith. Abraham believed in God, that Abraham trusted in the promises of God. God says about Abraham that because of Abraham's faith in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. So God viewed Abraham as righteous, not because of his actions, but because of his faith in God. And Jesus is now saying that Zacchaeus is like Abraham in that way, that, that he has now become a man of faith. And see, that's the difference between these two guys. See, rich guy number one comes in and his intent is good. He wants to come back. He wants to improve his relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with that. But his posture's all wrong. Because he says to Jesus, what can I do? How can I earn it? What actions should I take? And, and Zacchaeus understands, it's not about my actions. It's all about acceptance. Because for Zacchaeus, he knew that if it was about his actions, he was in a world of hurt. But it wasn't about his actions. He accepted this invitation from Jesus to spend time with him. And as he spent time with Jesus, that's what changed him. That's what transformed him. And that's when the comeback happened. Because God's idea of a good comeback is when we accept Jesus and we allow God to change us. We don't do the changing. Our comeback isn't because we become more moral. It's not because we follow the rules better. It's not because we become more righteous. Our comeback happens when we allow God to change us. And specifically, Zacchaeus was changed in two ways. First, he stopped doing bad things. He stopped doing what was wrong. He stopped cheating people. But if that was the end of the story, it'd be a nice story but it wouldn't be a comeback story because God transformed Zacchaeus to not only stop doing wrong, but to start making right what Zacchaeus once made wrong. That Zacchaeus starts to restore. He starts to bring restitution to what problems he created because he was changed and transformed by God. And that for us becomes a really good benchmark to ask ourselves, how have we been changed by Jesus? Not only are we not doing the wrong things, but are we starting to make right what we once made wrong? A friend of mine came to faith in a pretty dramatic way. He had made kind of a mess of his life. He had committed a sin that was wrong. It hurt other people really deeply. He basically, he had cheated on somebody that he was in a committed relationship with, and it was with one of her friends. And it was a secret. Nobody knew about it. And that secret was tearing him up inside. And in the midst of that brokenness, he heard for the first time about Jesus and about God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's love, and he put his faith in Jesus. He started following Jesus and no longer himself. And it changed him. And he stopped doing some of the things that were wrong. He, he ended those relationships, but he didn't stop there. 
He realized that because he was changed by Jesus, he now needed to start making right what he knew was wrong, even though other people didn't know it yet. And so this guy wrote a letter, several letters, to all of the people involved, telling them exactly what he had done wrong, confessing his sin, and asking for forgiveness, and then offering to meet with those people to restore those relationships, knowing full well what kind of drama this was going to bring. But he did it because he was changed by Jesus. So how about us? You know, I I know the divorce hurt. In fact, it, it still hurts. And I know that it wasn't entirely your fault. There were some things that you did that contributed to the ending of that relationship. And even though it's been many years, and even though you don't talk anymore, and even though this is going to seem really awkward, maybe it's time to call up your ex-spouse and say, I'm sorry for what I did that led to the downfall of our relationship. And to forgive them for what they did against you even if they haven't asked for forgiveness, and even if they don't deserve it. Because that's how Jesus forgives us, before we ask for it, and even though we don't deserve it. Or maybe there's a student, and as school was ending this last spring, your friend group started saying something to this student, and and you didn't really have anything against them, but it was just kind of easier to go along with it than to speak up, and and they said some things, and they acted in certain ways, and, and you saw how much it hurt her. And you've been thinking about it all summer. And when the fall school year kicks off, you need to go find that student and go up to her and say you're sorry and apologize for being part of what happened. But don't stop there. Maybe you need to meet that student every day for lunch. So no longer will she have to sit by herself in that lunchroom. Because that's how Jesus would act. And that's what Jesus does when he changes us. Or I don't know, maybe you were at Target last week and you're buying groceries and you're watching them scan the bags of chips across and two bags went across but only one beep happened and you didn't say anything. And you got in the car and you're like, free chips. And now you're like, it's kind of like stealing. And even though this is gonna feel really weird, you gotta go back over to Target, hand them your receipt and say, hey, last week two bags got in the car and I only paid for one, I owe you a bag of chips. It's like, Kyle, that, that feels like, that feels like a, a hill that's too big to climb. Like, that, yeah, are you serious? Like, if you knew what happened, like, I mean, that's, there is no way, I, I get it. I, I get the tension that that gives to us. And I've experienced that too. But I think the tension comes in because oftentimes in our relationship with God, we can slide into approaching God the way that first guy did by thinking it's all about our actions, it's all about our efforts, it's all about what we do. And that's not what this is about. So if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I, I know the, the right that I need to go do to make right what I made wrong, but I don't feel like doing it or I'm not sure if I can, let me encourage you to do what Zacchaeus did. Spend time with Jesus. Because when you spend time with Jesus, you come face to face with the God that is full of holiness, with a God that is full of grace, with a God that is full of love, with the God that desires to have a personal relationship with you. 
knowing your past, but also knowing your potential future. And when you spend time with that God, it changes us and it transforms us. And I think when that has happened, it makes it easier to act like some of those things. Not easy, easier. Because it's not us doing it, it's God's spirit living through us. And when those things happen, we need to tell other people about it. In fact, I think one of the the best ways that we can let people know that we have been transformed by Jesus is through an act called baptism. And if you've never been baptized, I wanna encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've let God change your heart, this is your next step in your spiritual journey. Baptism is an opportunity for us to identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus because in baptism, we do it here at Wooddale, we go all the way under the water, it's called immersion. And we do that because we're signifying that we're agreeing with Jesus' death on the cross, that when he died on the cross, he died for our sins. And in the same way, we're now dead to our former way of life, it's over. But when we come up out of the water, because we don't stay there, We're coming up born again, living our life through the Holy Spirit, not of ourselves, having been washed clean from our sin. It's deeply symbolic. We don't do baptism for salvation, and it doesn't change us when we've been baptized, but it represents the change that has happened in our life. And it's an awesome experience. And let me just say this. If you were baptized as a child, that was very meaningful for your family, but this is an opportunity for you, you personally, to make a profound public commitment to Jesus because he's made a profound public commitment to you. And we have a great opportunity for you to be baptized coming up. So here's, here's what, if you're ready for that and you want some more information about baptism, you go to wooddale.org slash baptism, uh, or we have a baptism table outside in the, the lobby space after uh, this, this message, and you can chat with some folks. Also information in your service handout. But you can sign up to be baptized, and the baptism celebration we have coming up is on September the 16th. That's an important day because that's the day we celebrate our 75th anniversary here at Wooddale Church. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better way to celebrate 75 years of ministry than through baptism because baptism is all about life transformation And folks, that's what our church has been about because we're about Jesus and Jesus changes lives. That's what he does. He transforms us. And we should celebrate that as we celebrate our anniversary. All right, one more thought for you. So God's version of a comeback, God's idea of a comeback is that we accept him and that he's the one that changes us. But what does he change us into? Verse 10, which is the last verse in this story. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The reason Jesus came was to find and to save those who were lost, like Zacchaeus, and as we understand, like you and like me. Each one of us were lost people that Jesus found, that Jesus saved, and that Jesus is changing. And when we understand that, when God changes us to give us that perspective, we start to look for the other people like Zacchaeus in our life. Because I think each of us have a Zacchaeus. Each of us have somebody that annoys us or somebody that irritates us or somebody that has done something wrong to us. And when we've been changed by Jesus, we start to understand they need to hear about Jesus too. Before I joined the pastoral staff here at Wooddale Church, I had a whole nother career as a management consultant And one day we had a client out on the East Coast and that client called my team and called me and they needed an important analysis done for their organization. And so I got my team together and we worked really hard to get this analysis done and it was good. 
And we got it done and we sent it over to him a day before the deadline. The next day I'm sitting in my office and my email pings. And it's an email from this client contact. And I open it up and it's a forward from somebody on his team claiming that they never got the analysis, which isn't true because when we sent it over, they receded that they got it and it looked good and they appreciated how hard we worked on it. So our team kind of went to work to figure out you know, why they said now they didn't, they didn't have it. But I, I kept reading this email and that guy took that little piece of information and he just launched. And his email to me was questioning how it was possible that I hired such incompetent people to be on this project team. And then he turned it personal to me. He said, Kyle, I'm wondering if you have ever been able to successfully lead anything in your entire life. Because if you have any leadership ability right now, you're certainly not displaying any of it. And then he said, I don't know how you got hired by this organization, but you're a terrible representative of your entire industry. And he went on to question my worth as a human being. A couple hours later, another email pings. It was somebody on his team. We found the file, we just misplaced it. So it's all good, thanks so much. <laughs> but it wasn't all good. Because I was hurt, I was upset, and I was waiting for an apology that never came. I remember later that afternoon, I was walking around my neighborhood, and I was just thinking to myself, is that, is that true? I mean, it felt like such an overreaction, but that had to come from someplace. Like, what, what happened? What's going on? Is, is that how people see me? Is that what people think about me? Is, is, is any of that relevant? Every time that, that area, phone, area code called my office, I, I would just cringe a, a little bit for the next week or so. And every time somebody from that organization emailed me, I, I felt myself kind of emotionally bracing for another impact. And I was like, God, I, I got to work through this. And, and so I spent time praying to God and, and, and opening his word and just saying, God, can you help me through this? Can you help me through this? I, I don't believe this is true. Can you just help me through this? And one day, God asked me a question, not, not out loud, but in my heart. He said, hey, Kyle, when are you gonna do something good for that guy? Hey, Kyle, when are you gonna honor that guy? When are you going to bless that guy? So I started doing something every day that every part of the human part of me did not want to do. I started praying for this guy every morning and not praying that he would be changed and not praying that he would apologize and not pray that he would lose his job, although I thought about it. <laughs> but pray that he would have favor in his work, to pray that he would be blessed to pray that things would go well for him and his family and to pray that if he didn't know Jesus, that he would get to know Jesus and that he too would experience the love and the forgiveness of God and that that would change him. Why did I pray that prayer? Not because of how good I am, because that's not, that's not me. It's because Jesus has changed me and thankfully Jesus is continuing to change me. And that's the point. When we allow Jesus to change us, not only do we not do the wrong things, we start making right what we once made wrong, and we start to see the other Zacchaeuses in our life who need to meet Jesus too. And that, that is when the comeback happens.
Father God, thank you for the story of Zacchaeus. Lord, it's just 10 short verses, but there is so much that is there that is so relevant to our lives. And Father, I, I pray, Lord, that we would have the wisdom, Lord, to know how to take what we've heard from this message and to go apply it in our life. Father, I pray that we as your followers would increasingly allow you to change and to transform us. And Lord, that we would look more and more day by day, less and less like ourselves and more and more like you. And Father, in so doing, we might help more people come to a saving knowledge of you. Because ultimately, God, that's the purpose of the comeback. It's in your name we pray. Amen.